sitting here with is Isabella Kaminska. Hi, Isabella. Hello. How are you? Thank you for taking the time. We're sitting here in beautiful Alpbach. It's sunny outside. We were looking for a, a, a spot that's a little bit more quiet, but if there is sound in the background, um, we know where it's coming from. Um, we just finished a session on Bitcoin. Did you enjoy yourself? I did. A really interesting and unique session, especially the setting. Very unique. You've been with the Financial Times for how long before you left? 13 years. 13 years. And you left in, in January, right? End of January. This End year. of January. Mm -hmm. So basically the same time that I also um, started my own journey. So we are... Um, <laughs> mind, mel mind meld, as they say. And, and I've noticed that as soon as you got out of DFT, um, and you now, obviously you're now um, working on The Blind Spot, which is your, which is your own project. Um, could you tell me a bit about what you're doing with The Blind Spot? Sure. Um, so the blind spot is an independent media concept, and you know I wanted to scale up. So the it's supposed to be not just about me, because I appreciate that I have my own blind spots. So um, in time, I want to recruit more people, um, and really, it it was born from the fact that I felt that mainstream media was getting a bit risk averse and not tackling some of the topics that. I would want to tackle. One of the issues I think for finance is that it was very easy to write about finance for many years in a very depoliticized way because the story was financialization. So if anything, financialization was moving into politics and things were being depoliticized as they were getting financialized. Whereas I think the last two years, that has been the opposite situation. And as finance has become politicized, the kind of beat structures have got a bit blurry. And yet, even though it's impossible now, I think, to write about finance without touching on politics, I think the old media structures haven't really adjusted to that new norm, um, which means, you know, like Alphaville would have been, it wasn't really considered their beat to talk about politics. And, and you end up stepping on the toes of political writers or whatever, um, And it constrains your ability to kind of comment. So I wanted to start something where I didn't have any of those previous patches to worry about. Um, and I could really properly comment and provide insight based on, um, to my readers, on real neutrality and really objective uh, commentary. Because I think finance, to be good at investing, you have to be dispassionate sometimes about the politics And that's very taboo these days, but um, I think it's essential because if you start to believe one side more than the other, um, you will make bad choices with your portfolio. Sounds like a good plan. Do you enjoy it so far? It's been Being... really hard work. Um, I do enjoy it. I'm very glad I did it. But, um, you know, there are, it's not all, you know, smooth sailing and there are definitely challenges. Um, you do miss the scaling from an organization, you know, there is a lot of support and support structures in general that you maybe underappreciate when you're at a mainstream newspaper. And when you go independent, you realize you have to <laughs> do it all yourself. There's a descaling effect, which is the same as with like Uber, um, you know, when drivers decide to be independents. Um, so there are downsides. But the ability to basically rule your own kind of domain, I think, compensates. Judging by recent recent tweets that you did, some recent articles that you did, and also from your comments that I've heard so far here in Alba, um, the nec the nexus of finance and politics is where where you want to go, and where, is also where Bitcoin sits, and you haven't missed that, right? 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, precisely that the, 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 the financial system has become politicized. Bitcoin, weirdly, is political, but it's the kind of, it's political because it's the only neutral challenger in some ways. It's not, you know, the critics would say, oh, it's got a libertarian um, bent. But I think that's not true. I think as crypto has evolved, it's really been adopted by all sorts of um, political, I mean, there is no political class that doesn't potentially benefit from Bitcoin. So it can serve the interests of anybody. And that's what I like about it, because I think the dollar has used to serve that role, which is why we had a dollar reserve. And I've written a lot about the sort of the end of dollar neutrality since the sanctions have been imposed. And um, and I don't think people yet appreciate, look, I'm not one of those people who's going to say we're going to be off the dollar standard within like, you know, the end of the year or anything. I think the dollar is still going to have a huge market and a lot of influence, but... I also think that uh, the powers that be with the economic class are underestimating the impact of sanctions on the dollar and how that will undermine the reserve currency status. I think it will be more multipolar from now on. But at, at the same time, right now, we see a world that's actually turning more towards the dollar, especially because because of rate hikes and because of because of um, bubbles that are being deflated, right? Or am I seeing yes this incorrectly? Yes and no. I mean, if you look at, like, you know, Russia, Russian transactions in Yuan have never been higher, right? So Russia is transacting in Yuan. India is transacting in Yuan. You've got, um, yes, on the kind of, on the friendly side, like, if you... If you you know, if you separate the world into like the West versus everyone else, the dollar is doing that usual thing it does, where it becomes a lifeboat in in um, in a stress situation. So everyone flocks to the dollar in times of crises, um, and I think that's why I say I don't foresee immediate um, dissolution of the dollar. But uh, I do think, if, you know, frankly, I think the euro is in a much worse position than the dollar. But um, But I think in the longer term, the politicization will impact the productivity, efficiency of the economy that the dollar system sort of represents. Because I don't think you can just unplug from the from the global reserve system and not have consequences from it. You you, you said something interesting. You said Bitcoin is the only neutral alternative. Um, where does Bitcoin stand today, and what what? How long did it take you to come to this conclusion? Because you've been writing about Bitcoin for a while um, and you clearly you're more open to the idea of it, um, you know, staying and having a role. So I still think that it's incredibly cumbersome and not user friendly. It's got all these sort of clunky issues and, and energy intensity. But I guess my biggest concession was in 2020 when I realized that, you know, the main criticism that I never really bought into of the standing system was that we can't trust our governments. And I thought that was always very far-fetched and a bit silly um, when I was hearing, you know, from the crypto space and that, oh, Bitcoin's great because, you know, censorship resilience. And um, so I never, I, I kind of thought, oh, don't be crazy. Like democracy, you know, it is a thing and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not... An anti-state person, I think it's important to have civil structures and society. Um, but I think COVID kind of made me realize that 
it's a very thin line between government, sort of a, a functional democratic state and government overreach. And yes, that was an emergency, and, and I, I don't want to take a position on COVID itself. Um, some people might argue that all the actions taken by the governments were um, were entirely fair and justified, but and they may have been. I don't think we'll know for for a while yet. But um, what I didn't like was the sudden the system's sudden uh, denial of service, so to speak, to anyone criticizing uh, the policy. Like even if we went with that policy, I, I thought it should be absolutely imperatively okay for criticism to be a you know a thing of even in such a crisis i we are a democracy we're supposed to be able to take um criticism and free speech so i'm not a free speech absolutist i'm more of a free speech maximizer because i don't think you know i'm not like saying oh we should allow total like chaos on the internet i think the current legal structure is about right I don't think it should be okay for people to be slandering or libeling people online without, you know, any due, um, without any recourse. But um, but it worried me that conversation and debate could be so stifled. And that's when I realized, well, if conversation is stifled, that that's just one step away from from po- the political process itself being stifled. And then if you if if for some reason a total i mean I'm not, i i i i struggle with these words because they're so insane when you say them but like if a totalitarianism like a mindset was to take over the government the problem is the group think and then the only resistance you know if they then have the means to shut down your bank account well how do you get out of that it, you need a political process but political processes need funding and if you haven't got the funding for political process for, for opposition parties or whatever because they've decided you're a terrorist, you can't get a sort of movement that um, an opposition party going because the mean like, all payment means are controlled by the state. That's really bad, and that's when I realised actually the Bitcoiners have a point. Censorship resi- resistance is really important, but also the ability to be able to raise money no matter what, um, just in case. And the downside of that is, of course, that that means criminals and all the bad people get, like, the means to fund as well. <laughs> but that's but the, the cost pe- of freedom. And is... the bad people get the, the means because they're bad people anyway. I mean, because the rules yeah. are only being up- upheld by those who are not the criminals. Yeah, so I think, and that's the cost of freedom, is that, like, essentially... You have to be realistic about the fact that freedom is the like freedom is risk essentially. Um, if you want to have a totally safe space, protective environment, that's fine. But you give up on freedom. Do you think that that Bitcoin can be because that is something that is talked about a lot, but we don't know if it's really happening on a, on a broad scale? Um, the quote unquote democratization of, of finance because there is people who have been censored out of the, the the financial system even before you know political censorship was a problem i 'm talking about um, developing countries i 'm talking about uh, marginalized groups you know um, is, is bitcoin is, can bitcoin help there um, I think at the moment it 's still struggling <laughs> because it 's not very user friendly and it, it requires a lot of education and and um, 
investment to understand it. Um, so it's not, that's why kind of easy third party systems exist, centralized ones, because they make it easy. You outsource all that complexity to a third party um, whilst you focus on your day job, right? Um, that said, I don't know if that's not necessarily a bad thing because I don't think, personally, I don't think Bitcoin should be the day-to-day like currency. Like It isn't very efficient and I don't have a problem with centralized currencies. But I, I do think it's good if Bitcoin's there if you really need it. And if you really need it, you won't mind a bit of friction. So that's kind of good because that friction maybe prevents like too much abuse by the criminal classes or people who want to abuse it for bad reasons but if you really need it for like you know raising money to to fend off you know political repression or defend yourself or you need to raise money to buy arms in ukraine or whatever um then it's it, that friction is surmountable and, and lo and behold in this year alone, we have seen both. We have seen the truckers in Canada being censored and then being helped by, by, by Bitcoin and crypto. And then we've seen, um, you know, money sent to the Ukraine, to the, to the people who defend themselves. Yes, exactly. And that's the flip side. And um, and I think it's an important flip side. Um, and and the, Canadian, the Canadian truckers really, um, I think, brought home to a lot of people how dystopic the financial system we have is that a single single politician or political class can determine without any due process that people don't have access to their money or don't have the right to spend their money in, in, in support of causes. Um, that the, you know, that, that to me was a step too far. And um, I, I'm not, you know, I'm Polish, so I, I believe there needs to be a check on power, um, you need to have resistance capacity in the system because that's what keeps the system honest. If the, if the core system thinks that there's no challenger, then it will become complacent and corrupt. But actually just knowing that there's a challenger system out there should help, whether it's used or not, is a beneficial thing, I think, for everybody. Fix the Money is brought to you by 21Bitcoin, the easy way to buy, sell, save, and send Bitcoin. 21 Bitcoin is a Bitcoin-only app, not an exchange. There's no distractions. There's an individual savings plan, very low fees, first-class personal support, and a German bank account. Based in the Austrian Alps, it's available now throughout Europe. Download now using the code FIXTHEMONEY to get up to 20% off your fees over there on 21bitcoin.app. Not your keys, not your coins. You need a hardware wallet signing device. Check out the Bitbox O2. Swiss made, secure, beautiful, open source, Tor support, Bitcoin only, and an all around outstanding product. Use the code FIXTHEMONEY on shiftcrypto.ch to get 5% off. That's the Bitbox O2. Fix the money. Why are you saying you're Polish? I mean, what's what's the story there? Because because um, I also believe uh, um, power needs needs checks and balances, right? And I'm not Polish, but so what's your what's your story? Yeah, so I, I just think like anyone who has um, any family background or direct background of dealing with totalitarian states has a sort of uh, immunization against. Um, 
they can detect the encroachment of new totalitarian systems maybe a little bit more uh, quickly than others. I think my, a lot of my colleagues, friends in the UK would think what I'm saying is crazy. Um, they don't doubt that the government is acting in their interests, but I am not as confident. I Not just because of malice, I just think incompetence more than anything. And we kind of sleepwalk our way into these power structures that are not necessarily conducive to maximizing freedom. And um, as a poll, I think I am uniquely positioned to be able to recognize that simply because I know I know of a time when that's already happened. And I know the stories from my parents. I know how it operated. I know that the system tries to gaslight you into thinking that you're the crazy one, not the system. Um, and it is a kind of war of numbers and, and, and rallying um, a resistance movement if, you know, that will be challenged. And, and I think, you know, that there's a perception, I think, in the West that when communism fell, everybody was like, yay, yay, we're capitalists now. Like, you know, there was no resistance. But that's not true. I think, there were, you know, most people who come from Eastern Europe will testify to the fact that there were a lot of disappointed people. It's not like the communists went away overnight. Um, so it's just the balance tipped in the favor of, of market liberalization but um the other half didn't necessarily go away overnight and that means the political power <laughs> stayed with the same people that had it before um i think in a lot of cases it did and um and the reason i mention that is simply that uh that's how power shifts it's like which norm is the one that prevails um and when you're in the marginal uh group Like, so you had the system where the communists prevailed and then the silent minority, like a very loud minority and then some sort of silent majority tipped it to the other side. But there was always going to be, uh, it wasn't going to be universal. I don't think there is like a universal, and that's probably a good thing. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think any system should be totalitarian. I'm, I'm kind of going off point, but I guess... What I'm trying to say is that as a poll, I'm very conscious of the fact that um, just because uh, people are telling you you're wrong <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean, and they're in, in, in a position of power and authority, doesn't necessarily mean they're right. Whereas I think a lot of um, the West that hasn't had a recent muscle memory of this can't envisage a situation where the, where the government would be, whether maliciously or through incompetence, um, actively sabotaging the system. Well, you can see the same in economics, right? You can see, you, you go to any Western European city to the university and you find legions of people saying, how about we give Marxism a try? Yeah, exactly. Because they have never seen where it leads. Exactly. Did you, did you, parents flee from Poland to like from communist Poland to, yeah, to yeah, the UK? Yeah. Um, so my parents were, um, you know, they came to the UK in the seventies and, uh, they were, I guess, dissidents. They were pro solidarity. Um, they worked in the Polish diaspora. Um, we, were, I grew up a very, you know, close knit Polish community. Um, you know, we would, there were lots of Polish clubs. There was a government in exile at the time. Uh, in Poland, uh, in, in England, 
my father was doing actually ironically given I wrote about fintech and payments he was doing remittances to Poland um, from the UK so your father would be a bitcoiner I think in yeah I suspect in this day and age he probably would have been there was obviously no Bitcoin at the time but there was uh, you know so hard currency had to be moved into into Poland through unique ways Um And the communists needed the card currency, so they actually were quite happy for people like my dad to be operating. Um, but because uh, everything was corrupt, <laughs> so um, there is this perception that there was it was very leaky. Like gov like the government situation was like there were lots of people who would take bribes right everywhere, and they needed hard, hard currency. So anyone who was operating in the in the inter in the kind of remittance space was kind of playing both sides yes they were helping to fund the resistance but also they were essentially lubricating the, the corruption in the system indirectly so like my dad would I guess say that he was a neutral player he was he was interested mainly in just you know taking advantage of well not I mean he obviously sided with solidarity but he, he as a businessman he was you know selling shovels to to the yeah. to the situation um but um nonetheless i think when 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 his remittances business was actually suspended he then had to turn to kind of doing parcels to poland instead so um so even then it's interesting because back then to get money from the uk into poland you had to go through ireland which was one of the few neutral countries that allowed a correspondent banking relationship with the USSR, well, the former communist bloc. And um, so it was kind of like leapfrogging through Ireland. Um, anyway, the whole environment reminds me of today uh, with the sanctions, obviously. So there were always ways to get the money into these areas. Um, not that my dad's in, <laughs> in that business anymore <laughs> totally different political situation but um but it is so interesting because you being being from poland because you say you're polish but you're born in the uk mm. right mm -hmm. um so this gives you gives you extreme like like a good perception i mean nobody would say you're pro-russian just because you say the sanctions will have consequences because you're yeah. from poland i have a bit of cover i mean i try to be realist and um You know, I think with, um, with being, you know, I'm Polish-English. I was born in the UK, but I grew up in a very Polish household, so I, I didn't learn English until I went to school. I would spend a lot of my summers in, in Poland. I would, you know, I was, you know, in, incredibly Polish. You know, people might say I even had a Polish accent when I spoke English. So um, I, I think... Um, even though now I perceive myself to be English, I have that legacy Polish mentality. So towards the Russian situation, the Poles are naturally, they have a visceral kind of anti-Russian mindset because you always are anti the last oppressor you've had to deal with. And so I think universally, and the Poles are very, even if they're very schismatic politically internally, when there's an enemy outside trying to encroach on Poland, they, they usually unite together against a common enemy, right? And so Russia has been the eternal <laughs> enemy of Poland, like in many ways. 
so viscerally, I agree with that, and I, I don't trust, you know, Putin. I don't. I would never defend him, but at the same time, I'm not going to sort of like encourage the mentality that what we're doing is rational behavior because I don't think self-sabotaging or making ourselves weaker in the process is a logical long-term... So you have to win the war, not the battle. And the way we've approached um, the situation, I just don't think is very smart. Could you... If we, if we go back to, to 2020 and, and, and to your time, like to your last two years at DFT, I mean, this all culminates, right? You, you, you're there. Mm -hmm. You are one of the stars there. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, there's no need to leave for you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then COVID happens and the whole groupthink situation happens. And it seems like, um, I mean, obviously this happens. Newsrooms are staffed with people. And we all make mistakes and we all... Um, get into get into get into situations where we go with the mess or against. Them. But I mean, how did you did you see this from within the newsroom? And and does this you know culminate in you leaving? Well, I think there were lots of reasons why I left. Amongst others, like doing the same job for 13 years. Like you know, there was nowhere really I could move on to because I, as far as I was, con as far as I can, you know, considered um, Alphaville was like the best job at the FT. It was the most free and. What was there not to like? Where could you go? You could become an, a columnist, but really, for me, Alphaville was just the perfect blend of everything I ever wanted to do in journalism. Um, so there was just no escalation. <laughs> Number one, escalation. You know what I mean. Um, uh, the the other reason, though, was that I think Alphaville had evolved since the days that I first joined. So when we when I first joined, Alphaville was like the skunk works of the FT. We were entirely autonomous. We were doing our crazy stuff. And actually, internally, we were quite off the radar. People kind of like just thought, who are these crazy people? You know, we weren't really given a lot of attention by other reporters. They just thought we were some like weird little element of the FT. They didn't take us seriously. Um, but as we got more traction, we ended up having a higher external reputation than we did internally. So externally, I was like being invited to all sorts of, you know, podcasts, not podcasts, like then it wasn't, but conferences, whatever. I was, I really was, I was finding myself at sort of the same functions as sort of high, longstanding op-ed um, columnists at the FT. Mm. And, and I just remember that that was a bit of like, They're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it's because we had a much higher external exp uh, reputation than internal in, for a long time. And as that feeling kind of, as that understanding kind of like rippled through the newsroom, the beat reporters, I think, became more conscious of us, which meant that they became more territorial. So whereas in the beginning we had like free reign to write about almost anything, After a while, it was it became more and more kind of collaborative with the beat reporters, and you had to kind of yes, we could still like we ended up orientating towards subjects like crypto where there weren't any uh, beat reporters because it was such a new topic, right? So we were, now that makes sense. Oh, I understand. Yeah, okay. because it was so we were looking at things in between the cracks that sort of the rest of the newsroom had missed, mainly because it was such a headache, like having to have like you know, even when I was doing Uber and like. I mean, not that I didn't clash with it. It was collaborative, don't get me wrong. But I think 
I think there was a sort of like, why are you on this story kind of attitude sometimes. But you were always, I mean, the FT, Alphaville, you and your colleagues have always been very anti-crypto, very anti-Bitcoin. Yeah, so I think in the early days, I mean, you know, Alphaville, I think, is just, all, at least under my domain, um, uh, under my time there, I guess, um, we're just, we scrutinize everything. You know, we don't, you know, with all these things, I think everything demands scrutiny and everything Everything has to be critiqued, and Bitcoin needed that criticism. I don't really take back anything that I wrote because I think the best, you know, innovations can withstand criticism. And if after ten years, you know, you're still standing in the face of all that criticism, that is actually a strength for the, for that product or whatever, right? I think after ten years, if you've been criticizing you and, and the thing that you've, you know, I think you've got to adjust your view if if that thing is still around and not falling you know but then i would say a lot of my criticisms stand true to this day amongst them are the usability and the scaling the concentration of mining all that did happen um the kind of ironic return of middlemen like you know and and the system replicating itself and and becoming scammy and the whole kind of just you know wide distribution of alternative coins and you know all of that i think i think we were on on the money on that i think where we got it wrong or at least where i think i got it wrong is that i underestimated the the role of censorship resistance because i did genuinely didn't i genuinely did believe that the system wasn't as i don't want to say as corrupt as I think it is now. But I do think, I mean, let's be frank, I do think the system is corrupted. I think that there isn't working democracy at the moment. I I don't even think, I don't think even our own population understands our, our political uh, kind of institutions. And the fact is that we're not supposed to be a democracy anyway. We're supposed to be a kind of representative democracy with checks and balances. Um so, but I don't think that is functioning at the moment. Does that mean that when you say the censorship persistent um, is so important that you also looked into proof of work and the energy question? Yes, I mean, um, yeah, so I guess I am more of a, I'm more of a, um, uh, I'm more of a kind of, <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin maxi, I guess, is if I had to side with anything. And that's because I do think proof of work is quite unique. Whereas the proof of stake stuff, I, I kind of see it going down the same pathway as, as conventional systems. And, oh, yeah, okay, I can, you know, I've been in lots of arguments with people about, you know, proof of stake is still better and more distributed. And it is, but you I have, I've never heard of those arguments. <laughs> uh, they're only, mostly happening on my Discord channel these days. But, um, but uh, I think I think the pr uh, for me, if you're going to do it, you have to do it properly. And I think uh, Bitcoin is probably the most resilient, and therefore, for the for the for what I'm looking for from a sense censorship resistant system, Bitcoin is the only one that really satisfies. So, um, and that's largely to do with proof of work because of the game theory and 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 the fact that you have this like longest chain factor and and that you know any competitor is always going to come short relative to to the incumbent so i do agree with that 
Do you agree with the idea that Bitcoin can help, you know, even with the energy transition because it's 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 an energy buyer of last resort? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know about energy transition. I th I think Bitcoin's opportunity is to create a carrot sort of environment for like carrot in the context of carrot and stick. I think Bitcoin creates great incentives for people to innovate around like clean energy because whoever can create you know energy efficiencies actually. Actual, actual efficient sort of um, progress in that sense, um, they'll benefit the prizes that, like, you will sweep up and become, like, huge. I mean, presumably if you find the cure to, if you create fusion or whatever, you're just, you know, you can sweep up everywhere. But Bitcoin is that extra, extra incentive that you need. And I think, um, I think that is a good thing. What do you think does Bitcoin need? What do you think, where, where does Bitcoin lag? What does the community lag? What, what's the next steps that should be necessary to be even more, besides UI and besides, you know, ease of use, but um, are there like specific areas that you look, look at? Uh, what does Bitcoin need? So I think it needs to differentiate itself uh, from the rest of the crypto crowd. I mean, it already does, but I think it needs to kind of sell itself as an independent um, concept increasingly, because I think from a broad brush sort of uh, public perception, it's all it's all the same, right? All crypto is kind of lumped into the same bucket. Um, and I think Bitcoin also, I, I think Bitcoiners have some of the most, the smartest criticisms of the crypto universe. It's very much like your enemy's enemy is your friend kind of thing. Um, so they've been incredibly insightful about like the excesses of, DeFi and all the kind of other shenanigans happening in NFTs, um, but they're not—they've not been so good at like communicating to the public why Bitcoin is different. Um, I think that's and, and if you live in the eco chamber of Bitcoin, you'll go, "Oh, that's not true. We've done it." Blah blah blah. But I think you know, I'm looking at like everyday people. I don't think that message is coming through. So I think that would be useful. Um, I think that uh, this whole Bitcoin, not crypto, Bitcoin, you call it Bitcoin Maxi, which was actually a derogatory <laughs> term um, that Vitalik Buterin came up with, and then the, the Bitcoiners just ran with it. Um, this is just something that really happened in the last couple of months and maybe years that, that really, that is really something to drive home. And, mm. you know, the current meltdown in, in the crypto space, it does help, you know, it creates new, new Bitcoin maximalists. Um, I always tell people, I, mean, I don't, I mean, Obviously, there can be other innovations in technology. Obviously, mm. but when you but when you focus on the money side, um, Bitcoin is it. Um, but I also think one of the things that Bitcoin can do is, at the moment, there is zero like educational um, sort of. There is no no one really trying to communicate properly in a serious way about what's going on with CBDCs, right? And, and so you've either got, like, the conspiracy theorists who are, like, educating people on the kind of fringe side of, C you know, the c communications field, and therefore nobody takes it seriously. Or you have, um, you know, obviously I've done a lot of CBDC stuff, but it's highly technical. It's in a very technical... These these, these conversations are being held at, like, the highest level in, in conferences about, like, you know central bank conferences and, and like where public engagement is just almost zero. I think there needs to be more 
public campaigning about what's going on with CBDCs. And within that context, I think Bitcoin can can find a niche in showing why it has a use case. I think that that you're absolutely right. And I think that um, Bitcoin came at the right time because factors like decentralization, factors like censorship resistance, and factors like um, having something that is opposed to the idea of a central bank digital currency um, gives you perspective. Without having this, there is no... We wouldn't be talking about anything. Do you think we would even be talking? I mean, for me personally, I've been covering monetary economics for 12 years. Um, I know a bit about central banking and whatnot. Um, it seems rushed to me, the whole CBDC thing. And do you think Bitcoin has something to do with it? Or was that only like the oh, Libra yeah, no, thing? Definitely. I, I think Libra was the moment where they were like, okay, we can't ignore this anymore. But I think Bitcoin in a weird way was also the catalyst towards the CBDC. So Bitcoin came along, and it's good that it came first, but in, inadvertently it sowed the seeds of CBDCs because no, if Bitcoin hadn't have arrived, I don't know if CBDCs would have been in their current development where they are now. So Bitcoin seeded CBDCs, but then again, it also kind of immunized or provided some sort of layer of potential defense against CBDC. So it was better that way than if the central banks had decided unilaterally to do CBDCs, whether they would. I mean, frankly, I doubt very much that CBDCs will even run on a blockchain. I think the blockchain and the CBDC is like, you know, just a bit of theatrics. I mean... I, but I, do you think we're going to see them? Are you... Is this like a certainty? Think, because there's lots of talk, but I don't see much action. Yeah, so wherever they've done use cases, like in Bahamas, uh, they've not been very, they haven't had high adoption. And there is a very much similar argument, like what, what problem are you solving? The central bankers are very committed to them, but I guess it serves their interests to like, you know, they love, <laughs> I don't know, maybe they get paid for like just all this you know, they need something to do. They need you something know, to I mean, do, like you know, writing lots of reports, and it's an exciting thing to do, right? Um, but will they do it? I think weirdly. So yeah, and then Libra came along, and that was the moment they were like, "Well, we've got to do it because if not, like China will dominate." And that's been very much the narrative and justification for looking at it. It might not be sensible. There might not be efficiencies. There might not there might be all sorts of downsides and risks. But because China's gonna do it, we've got to do it. And so there is this mentality now that CBDCs and I kind of agree, to be honest. Like CBDCs again are kind of neutral. They can either be used for good, like if you trust your government, if you if you really like have a cohesive uh social system and you can see how CBDCs or even a social credit system within a CBDC structure could really maximize the efficiency of society and make it like super duper, like, you know, efficient, basically. Um, but at the same time, it could be used for such great harm that it's almost better to have an equilibrium where you don't have with CBDCs, you either have the best of the best or you have the worst of the worst. And for me, I'd rather have a mediocre system that is neither the best of the best or the worst of the worst than like something in the extremes that is 
guided by some sort of concept of perfection because perfection can be turned one like 180 degrees on on itself. So what you're saying is that there's one nation, one country on earth that is equipped to do a CBDC and that's Switzerland. They all, they, yeah, <laughs> okay. and, they, and they already said, I think they already said they're not going to do it, right? I think they've been, I don't know. I mean, I, last I heard they were doing sort of, you know, their massive referendum. Like they have like a referendum every two weeks. That's but, true, they have a referendum. Um, and I think they did a referendum and there was, it didn't pass something because of, I don't want to get this wrong, but there was something to do with uh, who owned the data and they, the, 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 I, I mean, was the, being the, explained that the, that they were going to revisit the referendum and it was all about a question of the data ownership structure and that if it wasn't a private sector, or maybe they wanted the, I can't remember, anyway, there was some sort of data ownership development issue. In the end, you have, to, you have to ask all the questions that you are asking about Bitcoin, you have to ask about CBDCs, you know, is it, is it secure, is it... Is it is it uh, is privacy protected and 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 uh, what about the banking system? I mean, there's so many questions we could sit here for. for but I, I, after talking to you for an hour now, for half an hour now, and all your story and all your background, you're very skeptical about CBDCs in general. Yeah, I think I was one of the first people to be skeptical. I mean, I, I started writing about CBDCs from the, before anyone even called them CBDCs <laughs> and. I was always concerned because I saw them as like structurally so similar to Goss banking. Like they were, to me, always going to be a um, a challenger for like they, they they were always going to put pressure on the conventional banking system. They were always gonna there was always a risk they would crowd out uh, normal banks. There was always I always talked about the asset side of the balance sheet. So you issue all these like liabilities, CBDC money, right? But you have to invest it in something, and that puts the um, that puts the central bank in the business of actual banking and lending. And and that that is not what the central bank is supposed to be doing. It's not supposed to be doing these micro like decisions on the ground. Now, obviously, they've figured that out, and they are working. They're trying to create all these like mechanisms to ensure that these challenges can be met with and you know amongst other things like the privacy paradox that i wrote about first of all they were like oh no there is no such thing and then they admitted there was such a thing and now they have the solution of tiered kind of uh, so, so tiered transactions so transactions under a certain amount will be private but anything above a certain amount will not be so they've been iterating around all these um critiques as they as they adjust the model to deal with those critiques, you just end up like you start to question what's the point because the system they're comple- creating is so equivalently complex and and like once you start like bringing in the banks to offer wallets and how do you incentivize the banks to offer wallet wallets um, in a CBDC structure if you're not paying them any interest like. Eventually, it'll just get back to what we've got now because I don't see how. Or, or it ends up like without any banks. It's all run like that's what you mean when, when you say Goss, Goss banking, right? So yeah. This is a wordplay on Goss plan. On well, the... no, no. So, so there was a Goss bank in the Goss plan. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. So, well, so basically, you had like the state is state banking basically. Because there, I mean, not many people know this, but like Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, one of the ten the ten goals that they stated was one country, one bank. That's mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and that's mm-hmm. and that's where this could end up with, yes, as exactly. opposed to the exact opposite, which is Bitcoin, where there's one country and basically everybody is their own bank. We're not even going yeah. into detail. And, I, you know and I, mean. I and I think and I think the central bankers recognize that risk, which is why they are trying to mitigate against it, and they are acknowledging these risks, and they are trying to have their cake and eat it. But I fundamentally think that you. To have a CBDC, to have all the efficiencies they want, they can't then take the efficiencies away by, like, effectively putting a check and balance on, on the Gosbank system. It's either Gosbank or it's not. So um, they want a kind of, like, halfway house cake and eat it thing. Um, I'm a bit concerned that they also want to demonetize the system more broadly because they want to link... It's going to be account. A CBDC will be account based, right? So it's going to be based on your identity. Um, and so it's a social credit. It inevitably has to become one. I don't see how it can operate efficiently. But 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 now I have to say, I mean, let's let's call call it what it is. That is a dystopian hellscape. Well, it is for me, but a lot of people don't seem to think that. I do, but and and more people do, and the Bitcoiners will, and so Bitcoin does help to at least activate that part of the brains, I guess. I mean, you know, so so when I first got into Bitcoin, which must have been the first camp alpha that we ever did, I think it must have been about twenty fourteen or even earlier, maybe, maybe even earlier. Um, I'll have to check the date. But the first panel I ever did that I ever organized was. This was right right in the early days when people still had no idea. Like, this was before even the narrative of, like, blockchain good, Bitcoin bad. You know, remember those days? Um, and the panel, I just saw it as a mechanism towards CBDCs. That was one of the things, I think, that was driving my distrust in Bitcoin, is that I yeah. didn't see it as a solution to that problem. I saw it as a pathway to it. Um but it's it's kind of like an inoculation. Like Bitcoin, I guess, you had to have the inoculation. And in some cases, the inoculation, like with polio now, has caused the uh, the disease to break out. But hopefully the inoculation will... If we hadn't have had the inoculation more broadly, then, I don't know, that's a crap metaphor. But, <laughs> I just remember very specifically that first um, conference that we did. And... You know, I called it as a joke. I'd called it, you know, what's that Bible quote um, about the mo- he who? Oh, I can't remember now. What's the Bible quote about? The money quote. Or the money quote about what, uh, everyone will buy and sell. No one will be up buy and sell without the mark of the beast or something like that. So I named the panel that as a joke. I didn't actually think we would be there. Um, wait, 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 what you're saying is that the first time you, you came across Bitcoin, you were already skeptical about Bitcoin because you thought that would lead to the acceptance of CBDCs, yes. which some people still think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just right now it's very far-fetched to think that. I mean, it's, 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 we are talking about the complete opposite here. And when you look at how yes. central bankers deal with Bitcoin, you can see that they are out of their depth. You can see that they don't know how to deal with this, that this is not within their comfort zone. Well, it's a challenger, and I, but I think it's a good challenger, and I think it's important to have the options on the table because now that CBDCs are a p- potential kind of totalitarian banking system, um, and they'll disagree with that, and they, they will say that you know they're, they're putting all these 
measures in place to protect people's privacy and blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, but rule, that, that's the problem. The rules, we've seen this with the Eurozone, right? Mm -hmm. There were super nice rules, you know, mm. here, that, and then, and, and, but they were already immediately broken. Yeah. You know? and, and we talked about this yesterday, and I, I think you told me that you actually wrote an article about the, the, the similarities between mm. the Euro and, and, and Bitcoin. I see them too, mm -hmm. with the difference that Bitcoin's rules cannot be broken. Well, also, I think, you know, the Euro project was mandated into existence, right? So countries, and it was, it was met, you know, there was a Maastricht treaty process where you had to have all the kind of fiscal side of your, you know, economy sorted at the same time. Um, that's the difference. And I think Bitcoin is an opt-in system. I think as soon as you start mandating Bitcoin... That's when it's no, then it shouldn't be mandated because I think it has to be a kind of like market-led solution. So can we can we just say right now that we don't know where this is going, but we can be quite happy that at least something like Bitcoin, that Bitcoin exists. I am happier that there is Bitcoin in the mix of different. Like I don't necessarily want a Bitcoin-only system. I think we can have a system where there are people who trust each other and create centralized systems, which will always have efficiencies over a decentralized Bitcoin system. And there's no problem. But if their trust collapses, they always have the option to default to Bitcoin. Like that is, you know, the last resort currency. And it's good that it's there because if it wasn't there, then, then um, when trust pools collapse, there is nothing, there's no safety net. Isabella, thank you very much for taking the time. Please tell us where can we find the blind spot? Where we can where can we find you? Okay, so I am on the world's worst uh, URL because it was the only one available um, with my chosen name, which is the dash as in a dash blindspot, which is one word dot com. So the dash blindspot dot com, and I'm on Twitter at the uh, at Isa Kaminska I Z A K A M I N S K A. So you can find me in those places. Please find Isabella. Thank you very much for taking the time. I hope we can do this again. Thank you so much. For more content, podcasts, and articles like this, visit fixthemoney.substack.com.